Out in the parking lot, was a few weeks ago, one of, uh, one of our members said, uh, I mean, this was, I think, his, by way of a compliment. He said, uh, well, you've been okay so far. You, you haven't put me to sleep yet. <laughs> the parables of Jesus are sometimes illustrations from everyday life, and sometimes they're not. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that grows up into a big bush. He said it's, uh, the Word of God is like seed that's thrown on earth, which is hard and rocky and crowded, and it doesn't grow very well. Those are illustrations from everyday life, but more regularly, more usually, they are strange, uncompromising, surprising stories. Oh, yes, they use familiar characters, farmers and family members and merchants and stewards, and they are in settings that we're familiar with, uh, banquets and farms and kingdoms. We can recognize the setting, but the plots are completely convoluted. God's ways are not our ways, and they're full of bumps and surprises. They are strange and bizarre. Today's parable is one of those subversive, disorienting parables. It seems to have absolutely no touch with reality whatsoever, but on, a, on another level, the story puts us in touch with a reality we would never be in touch with except for the teaching and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Today, to help us into the parable, which have a dramatic character, are our ready-for-prime-time players in their their second presentation before you as we listen to the Word of God and receive it as it comes to us from the 20th chapter of Matthew, uh, this uh, rendition of uh, the parable of the laborers in the field. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went about, out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, You go into the vineyard also, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? Because no one hired us. You go into the vineyard too. Now when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, starting with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received the denarius. And so when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received the denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, Those who were hired last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day's work and the scorching heat. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I want to give you this last person the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I want 
with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We probably all heard of the Hindu concept of karma. Uh, our future life and actually the things in this life are going to redound to us by how we act now, by how we live now. Actually, before working on this sermon this week, I'd always kind of scoffed at that idea. And then as I was reading through the thoughts of this parable, I said, you know, that's, that's actually the maximum I live by most of my life. There's sort of a quid pro quo to life, isn't there? And there's too often a quid pro quo to my relationship to God. If uh, I do this, I expect you to do that for me. This is the way we live. It's kind of baked into our culture. We have mottos which sing about them and say them. The early bird gets the worm. No pain, no gain. There's no such thing as a free lunch. We are what we do. You are worth what you accomplish. Uh, Americans, at least of my generation, and I think probably all generations, are kind of addicted to work. We are what we do. And there is undeniably a lot of truth to what I just read. I'm not scoffing at those maxims. The warp and woof of the world does seem to operate that way to a large extent. But this parable of Jesus about workers in the field seems to ask us to throw away all our calculations and our calculators because the most fundamental economics of the world run differently. If we look at uh, the surrounding story of this setting, we realize it comes up in a debate amongst Jesus' followers. Uh, in Matthew 19, it occurs just after Jesus has spoken to the rich young ruler, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Well, give away all that you have, sell it and follow me. And then uh, the disciples come and, what? we've done that. Jesus, we've followed you for a long time. What will happen to us? And Jesus replies and says, this is in Matthew 19, everyone who has loved houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. There are rewards for being Christ's disciple. But then he immediately runs on and says, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And this parable is told kind of to explain that difficult, last, hard saying. Like the other parables, the story is straightforward, it's clear, and employer hires some people to work in his field, and it starts at 6 a.m. I was up at 6 a.m. this morning. I didn't, I'd forgotten that it can be dark at that time. Shouldn't have been. But on the other hand, we uh, get it on the other end, don't we? This is the second day in the rest of our lives, daylight savings times, hooray. 6 a.m. and they start. Then others come at 10 a.m. and at noon and at 3 p.m. and some come 
at 5 p.m. at the very end of the day, and they are all employed. And then when at times comes time to hand out the pay, the employer reverses the order, and he takes the last first, and he gives them a full denarius. And those who come later are thrilled by that because they calculate what they would earn on that basis. And then one by one, the other workers, including the ones who have spent a long, hot day in the fields, are paid one denarius, and they complain, and they whine, and they moan, and I would have, I would have too. And the master said, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree, agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired less the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own, with my own money, or are you envious because I pay them the same? Um, he did not say that if you will do this, then God will do that. If we think that God has to be coaxed into blessing us, if we think that we have to earn God's favor and His love and His attention for us, then we will become anxious and insecure people. This parable recreates the entire basis on which our relationship with God stands. If we think God is frugal and grudging in the way He blesses us and gives us His love, then it will directly affect our relationship with Him. So let's look at three brief, simple, but deep teachings that this parable gives us. In the first place, the parable teaches that God gives generously. In the kingdom of heaven, nobody is shortchanged. What the parable is really about is Matthew 19 gives us the, we've spent time to look at the setting and the context, it's about eternal life. God's great gift of eternal life with Him is what is at stake in our relationship with Him. And the idea that such a great gift is cheapened because others receive the same gift with less service is absolutely absurd. The point of the parable, of course, is not that eternal life is something some people earn with a lifetime of hard work while others find it out of the generosity of the giver. The Scripture is clear. Salvation is a free gift. It is something we can never earn. I think I've decided to give a very short uh, series, six or eight sermons on Ephesians after this series, which will end in a couple more weeks, and then Palm Sunday and Easter, and then a short series on Ephesians. And Ephesians shares this same theology. I found it interesting working this week. It is as it should be, but the theology of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, and the theology of Paul in Ephesians is identical. Hear what Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not by works, so that no one can boast. I uh, pastored in Texas for seven years before coming to Golden Gate Seminary after my doctoral work was completed, and it was uh, seven wonderful years, but I had never been in the state before preaching for the pulpit committee, and as I was going down, we Graduate students at uh, my seminary, we had carols and offices, really, where we worked on our dissertations. And one of the fellow Texans heard I was going down to 
preaching view of a call in Texas. And he said, you can't go there. I said, why is that? He said, well, you don't have the right name to be a pastor in Texas. And I said, how's that? And he said, well, every successful pastor in Texas has the name of a gunslinger. And I didn't know what he was talking about, but I went down there and, and ministered and pastored, and I found he was right. My predecessor was named Blake Smith. The pastor down at Trinity Baptist in San Antonio was Buckner Fanning. And uh, one of my best friends in town, the pastor over at First Baptist, I was at University Baptist, was uh, Browning Ware. Browning Ware. I think I may have told this story before. I try not to duplicate them, but I can't remember. But our, our children went off on, uh, our young people, went off on a retreat about two months ago. And I think I may have set, quickened this story in my mind. If I'm, if I'm duplicating it, forgive me. My father, when he was telling a story he knew he had told before, he said, I might have told this before, but don't pay any attention. I want to hear it again myself. So I was at a youth camp uh, with our church, and Browning Ware was the pastor that week, a good friend. He, he's the guy, if I shared this before, kind of looked like the Marlboro Man back in those days. Uh, they don't make those commercials anymore. But he said, when I was a young person, when I was considering giving my life to Christ, I was afraid that, that God wanted to squash, he wanted to step on everything that was Browning Ware, everything was important to me, everything that I yearned for, he wanted... He wanted to step on, and I resisted that. And then, of course, I gave my life to Christ, and it was the most important, most wonderful day of my life, and I've, I discovered that everything was important in my life, everything that was best in my life, that God encouraged and wanted and pulled out of me. We, uh, God gives generously, and He shortchanges no one. No matter what our situation is, God is good to us. Comparative shopping is dangerous. Jesus does not want his disciples to think that our relationship to him and the blessings that he gives to us are based on any particular deeds or performance. They are not a quid pro quo. We felt it this morning. It... I was so proud of the church. We all were proud. It was a wonderful thing that we have uh, participated in Christmas, Project Christmas Child for so many years and done so well, but we rejoiced in it not because of what we had done, but because God was so great and because we saw the faces of those children and because perhaps we were able to give Him praise through this, and it was a joy to us that we have done that. His relationship to us is not related to what we do, or a quid pro quo. God is always generous. But then, the parable also tells us that God gives differently. He gives generously, but differently. From an earthly human perspective, you might expect that the, the, the denarius is to be handed out in order. But first of all, Jesus reverses the order. God is free. Everyone is given a gift. Everyone every single person, a gift they do not deserve. Um, I did a dig in Palestine and on the, uh, the Holy Lands, and on the weekends, we had three-day weekends, we would travel and do things, and 
one of my fellow diggers and I, we went off for three days. We went to Caesarea by the sea, not Caesarea Philippi, but it was on the water and it was a Roman ruin. And on the way there, we were told that if you dig anywhere on the sand of Caesarea by the sea, you will find a Roman coin. I thought that was an old wives' tale. It was silly. It was foolish. I went in one ear and out the other, but my companion took it seriously. So there were things, places to go and things to see, but he insisted in going by the sea and digging. I helped him a little, little bit until I got tired. It may have just, it was every bit of an hour. Maybe it wasn't two hours, maybe it wasn't three, but it was a long time. And that's, that's a long time to dig in the sand when you have sights to see. But there he was. I don't know how deep it was, but I, re I can remember this. It was when he was crouching doggy style, he was deeper than his head. Not standing up, but it was a big hole. And after a while, would you believe it? Despite my scoffing and disbelief, he came across a Roman coin. Can you imagine if somebody had told us, if you dig deep enough on the sand at Caesarea by the sea, you will find several million dollars. It might take you eight hours, but you will find it. Can you imagine doing that and finding it and then seeing somebody down the coast a bit just having to dig for 30 minutes and finding it themselves? Would you mind that? Of course not. The riches of eternal life are in, incomparable. And whether, what is 80 years to one year compared with eternity and infinity? Nothing. Uh, there is no, God gives differently, but He gives generously. And He gives to all abundantly and beyond what they could possibly need. Uh, I had the occasion to be in a, 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 a setting with Martha Williamson a few years ago. She was executive producer of Touched by an Angel, also a writer of a lot of those things. She's gone on and now she does Signed, Sealed, and Delivered, a series on Hallmark. My, my wife is addicted to those, so I've seen them all myself too, and they're pretty good. And um, she told a story about how she... She was assigned, touched by an angel. She said she'd just done a series, a pilot series with James Earl Jones about an African-American family, and it wasn't accepted by CBS. And, but they had this other project that they were going to pick up. It's called Touched by an Angel, and they threw it to her and said, we want you to fix this. She said it was awful. She said, why am I getting it? I don't know anything about angels. She said, because you're the only person we know that goes to church. True story. So she said she looked at it, had this big uh, whirly gig at the beginning, and it was sort of new agey. And so she went down to the library in Pasadena and spent a week researching angels. And then she went into the office of the vice president of CBS, and she plopped her research down before him. And she said, okay, here's the deal. If you're going to do a program about angels, you need to know two things. You need to get used to talking about God, be comfortable with that or you shouldn't do the series, and I won't do it. And the second thing you need to know is angels are not dead people recycled. They have their own integrity and their own life. And she went on and did the series. I'm sort of indifferent to it myself. I'm not rec recommending to do it one way or another, sort of 
bland theism, but hey, that's something. Bland theism is on the road. And uh, the stories were about redemption and forgiveness and about looking out for to, to uh, uh, it wasn't quite the God of the Bible, but it could be. Uh, so I, uh, there were those stories. And she was already about halfway through the series, and somebody, somebody asked her, well, how do you get these storylines fresh week after week after week? How do you talk about forgiveness and redemption week after week after week? Oh, and she said, oh, that's easy. She said, I came to Christ as an adult, and I never forget what life without Christ was like. So let me ask you imaginatively look at another part of the stories. Rather than getting off easy, these people that are hired at 10 and 12 and 3 and at 5 with just one hour left, what was their day like without work? Out in the hot sun, probably worried whether or not they were going to get any pay whatsoever that day, if they were going to go home and tell their families that nobody had hired them, that they couldn't eat that day. It must have been a terrible day, like life without Christ is terrible. Ask anybody who comes to Christ late in life or for that matter at any time in life, and I think there's probably something wrong with them or with their conversion if they didn't wish they had come sooner and quicker and earlier and missed all the years that they could have had with Him. God gives generously, and He gives differently. That is His prerogative. And then, of course, just as the parable is a parable about eternal life, it is a parable about grace. God gives graciously. We will probably hear a lot about this in Ephesians. We should hear a lot about this every day of our lives and every Sunday we come to church. Grace, grace defies sense and flouts justice. It is the act of a free and merciful God. I love the word grace. I love all the assimilations and associations and reverberances we have with it in the English language. I love every time we use it. We speak of being grateful for someone's kindness. We speak of being gratified by someone's good news. We congratulate others when they are successful. We strive to be gracious when hosting friends, when pleased, we live a, leave a gratuity. And one of my favorites is when a composer adds a gratuitous note, one that isn't absolutely essential to the melody, but one which adds timbre and substance and beauty and elegance and joy and makes the entire piece thrilling. They are called grace notes. Grace reminds us that good things come not from our own work, but from the sovereign, gracious hand of God. The uh, disciples are pretty worried about their status. Even at the, the end of John's gospel, Peter's worried about John. What's going to happen to him? Is he going to have the difficult life we are going to? And Jesus says, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? 
you must follow me. So this is a strange story because it is a parable of grace. It tells us that God is free and just and generous, and his gifts to us are gifts of grace. He says to a thief on a cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. He says to a persecutor of Christians who is present at the stoning and killing of Stephen, the apostle, the one who becomes the apostle Paul, you are mine and follow me. And those that might complain about that say, that isn't fair. It isn't fair to work that way. It's not fair. We walked with you. They would be right. It isn't fair. It's God's grace. It's more than fair. David Berkowitz, this is a story I've never told before, but because I, I just found out, I did find out about it a few years ago and just put it in the back of my mind. But in my youth, there was a serial killer in New York. I remember reading about him every day in the papers called Son of Sam. And when he was captured, they found out his name was David Berkowitz. And it was one of the, the horrifying events of my youth. I heard a few years ago that in prison he became a Christian about 10 years after he was incarcerated. Now, I it's online. I really recommend you uh, go and look up his testimony. I find it quite moving. But the point for this illustration, you know, it could be a jailhouse confession. It could be insincere. It could be hypocritical. That, all of that could be. My, my responsibility here is not to pass judgment on it. If I were going to baptize David Berkowitz, I, I would have a responsibility in passing judgment for what it's worth. I do find the story compelling and well-written and believable, but be that as it may, whether it is, is not or is, it is the exact plot of what God with, does with grace. What about those people he killed? I know God is just. God will handle them. God will be just in his disposition of every person. But this is just a small portion of David Berkowitz's testimony. He doesn't dwell, uh, he must have had help in writing this, even though he's had decades to work on it now, because he, he does just what he should do. It, it doesn't dwell on the past. He doesn't dwell on his torment. He doesn't dwell on the fact that he was always lonely. He says it, but he doesn't dwell on it. And he doesn't make an excuse for it. He goes into the military, and he comes out, and he's uh, alienated, and he's alone, and he falls under the sway of uh, a satanic cult. And he purchases the satanic Bible that's written by the late Anton LaVey. And he writes, and what happens, happens, that he deeply regrets. Then he writes, 10 years into my prison sentence and feeling despondent and without hope, another inmate came up to me on a cold winter's night as I was walking the prison yard. He introduced himself and began to tell me that Jesus Christ loved me and wanted to forgive me, and although I knew he meant well, I mocked him because I did not think that God would ever forgive me or that he would want anything to do with me. Still, this man persisted, and we became friends, and his name was Rick, and we would walk the yard together. And little by little, he would share with me about his life and what he believed Jesus had done for him, and he kept reminding me that no matter what a person did, 
Christ stood ready to forgive if that individual would be willing to turn from the bad things they were doing and would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross by dying for our sins. He gave me Gideon's pocket New Testament and Psalms and asked me to read the Psalms, and I did. Every night I would read from them, and it was at this time that the Lord was quietly melting my stone-cold heart. One night I was reading Psalm 34. I came upon the sixth verse, which says, This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard and saved him from all his troubles. And I poured my heart out to God, and everything seemed to hit me at once. The guilt from what I did, the disgust at what I had become. Late that night in my cold cell, I got down on my knees, and I began to cry out to Jesus Christ. I told him that I was sick and tired of doing evil, and I asked Jesus to forgive me for all my sins, and I spent a good while on my knees praying to him. And when I got up, it felt as if a very heavy but invisible chain that had been around me for so many years was broken. A peace flitted over me. I did not understand what was happening, but in my heart, I just knew that my life somehow was going to be different. That was 1987, and his life has been consistent, and he's had a Christian ministry for these decades since. The picture of what God did for the thief on the cross, the picture of what God did for the Apostle Peter, the picture of what God did for David Berkowitz, no matter what you make of it, is the picture of what God has done for everyone who calls upon His name. It is the same. Grace is the amazing mystery of God that flows His riches into our lives, that welcomes us home. Karl Barth was a mid-20th century theologian. He has been very influential in my own uh, theological pilgrimage. And some say, I might agree with them, that he was the greatest Christian theologian of the 20th century. And when he was in the last part of that century, not long before his death, uh, going on a tour of 10 great universities in the United States, Princeton, Harvard, and among them, I forget the others, a journalist came up to him and they asked him what was the greatest insight he had learned throughout his entire career of theological writing and education. And without hesitation, he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That is the heart of grace. That's the heart of the Christian gospel. Jesus loves me not because I said my prayers well enough or numerous enough, not because my children grew up to get good jobs, not because I have degrees, not because I come regularly to church, not even because I give regularly to my church. It's just because. It's a parable of God's amazing grace. It is grace that welcomes us home. And grace is the incredible idea that there's nothing we can do or not do to make God love us less or more. Let's pray together. God of Africa and the Americas, Haiti and the Himalayas, 
Somalia and the Sudan, Uganda and the Ukraine. Creator of the universe and all the peoples and places and lands and livestock of this world, we gather before you as a people who have been called not to a locale but to a kingdom, not to comfort but to a cause, a kingdom where you rule and reign and where you call people from all nations together because they are gathered around your throne. You call upon us to recognize that your name is blessed in good times and in bad. And knowing that, we lift the people of the Ukraine up to you. We pray for those who have lost loved ones on both sides of this struggle. We ask your blessing upon those who carry provisions and nourishment to them. May all who suffer come to know your sufferings and your victorious love. And we pray for the end of these hostilities, for a ceasefire and a truce and a peace. And we pray that we in this place and in this kingdom may be faithful to your call. It is our joy and our privilege, not because of any quid pro quo, but because you are so glorious and good and great, and we rejoice to see your name shared and lives changed and transformed. And it is our deepest joy to praise you and serve you, to know you and to be loved by you. Eternity itself will not be time enough to give you thanksgiving for that great grace and that great joy which covers us and envelops us in your love. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.